development topics. I'm your host, Oliver Davis, and I'm here with my guest, Dieter Blomer. Uh, Dieter, good to have you on the show. Um, can you share a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, sure. Uh, good evening. <laughs> nice to be here. Um, I'm a Drupal developer by trade. I've started in Drupal about, I think, 16 years ago or something, my Drupal.org profile says. Uh, recently, I switched to a new role in my company as technical director, but uh, I still have enough hands-on experience to talk about technical debt for now, so I wanted to take the chance to do that. Um, besides Drupal, I think my main interests are um, gaming a bit, watching TV, sometimes having some walks, and I used to play a lot of sports, but that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I was looking at your Drupal uh, your Drupal.org profile, actually, because um, I was looking at your DrupalCon talk page. And I, so I've seen that you've got, yeah, it's like 16 years or something since your profile was created. But yeah, I can see you've been on Drupal.org for yeah, uh, quite quite some time. So um, longer than me, actually. I think I'm about, I just went over 15, 15 years, I think, on, on there. So... Yeah, I think actually at DrupalCon, I went over um, over 15 years. So, yeah, We're old. Quite, quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Relatively speaking, I suppose. Um, as I said, we were both at DrupalCon. How, how was your DrupalCon? How was your, uh, what was your experience like? I was very good. Um, this year, uh, for the company um, I'm working for, we were able to be Diamond Sponsor and have a big booth. So it was already a lot of fun going there and having our own like little area. And on Thursday, um, pretty much almost the entire company was there. That was one of the dreams of our founders to get the whole company on Jupacon. So there were like, um, I think 70 or something, 60, 70, 80 people in our shirts and everything walking around. So it was really cool to see because everywhere you went, you could see like, ah, that's one of my colleagues. Uh, in general, it was lovely. Um, it was already a couple of years ago due to the pandemic that I was able to go to a DrupalCon and it was just a lot of fun to connect with the community again and see people that you've met years ago and catch mm -hmm. up on all the topics as well. Uh, like there were a lot of interesting topics uh, and sessions to attend. Too many, <laughs> too, many too many sessions. Definitely. I think I did uh, a couple of sessions. I think mine was in the first slot after the Drees note. So mine was out of the way pretty early. Uh, did a lot of just Boff sessions mostly, so bits for feather sessions because those aren't recorded because the court, the sessions are recorded. So I'll pretty much watch those on YouTube. Um, majority of the ones that are there. And we're just saying now that we're recording this on the 27th of November and the, the first videos have just gone onto YouTube today. So I'll be adding those to my watch later list and hopefully not hitting the 5,000 video limit, which I was quite near to at one point because I found out there was a limit on, you know, on, on YouTube. Um, but yeah, every session I tried to go in uh, the, was, was full. Uh, and that's been pretty common, I think, at most Drupal cons I've been to. The rooms are usually quite packed, which is, is a good thing. Yeah, but this year I didn't notice any rooms that were overflowing. Like I remember, I think it was in Amsterdam, not the last one there, but mm -hmm. the one before, like eight years yeah. ago or something. And that one, the rooms were like regularly overflowing. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that. So I really, I think it was a really like a fairly good organization and, and like a good organization in most aspects, like with the room size and the way everything was organized it was the first time I spoke at the DrupalCon and it was a very helpful person. Like, okay, if you have problems with the slides or the laptop or whatever, just to help out and get everything set up, which helps a lot to reduce the stress as a first time yeah. speaker. Um, so that was really like really nicely and well done. Yeah. I think that's always the worrying thing as a speaker, whether it's a, a small, local meetup or a big DrupalCon conference like is anybody going to come to my session and speak so to go and see people being there but then you've got the opposite problem where you've got a lot of people <laughs> and then it's like oh my god look at all the people who are in, in my session so it's, but it's not I'd rather that there be a lot of people than, than no people yeah I, I said that too except for the last 10 minutes before my, I had to start <laughs> giving this session with my co-speaker but it was cool, like uh, a lot of colleagues were there. So they were like in the first row as mental support. Um, it like, it makes a small difference, but it does make a difference in knowing that you got some people that, I don't know, are just there to support you. So it's uh, nice. I think one of my 
piece of advice I've had as a speaker and given to other speakers to find your nodder. So somebody in the audience who's there nodding along with the things that you're saying. And if you can plant a nodder in there from somebody who you know or or a company, a colleague from, from where you work, that can, that can help. Uh, the flip side is if they're falling asleep in the front row, then that's maybe not a good sign, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, luckily enough, they didn't fall asleep, but um, I don't know. Maybe it was interesting. Maybe they're just scared of me. <laughs> Did you have one one main uh, takeaway, something, one main sort of lesson or something that you learned while you were at, at the con? Um, yeah, something I knew beforehand, but was just reinforced. Um, the sessions and the buffs are very interesting, but go to a DrupalCon to network and talk to people. Um, it's it's the thing that is the biggest added value. Like you said, you can watch sessions online and you might not be able to ask questions then, but you're going to get a lot of the information. The buffs are also interesting, but it's also connecting and, and talking to people and more being interactive. And just walk around uh, on the booths. And if you have a booth, let people come to you and, and talk yeah. and see what interesting, because there were a lot of different perspectives that we saw of people. Like one person was there from, I think, Iceland. And he explained to us how he tackles working with students to also get junior developers. And it was just really interesting. Uh, I'm still on my to-do list to reach out to him and talk a bit more. But um, it's it's all those perspectives that make it very interesting and that help you to learn a lot. Yes, yeah, so, so I spent a lot of time in either boss sessions or in the, the sponsor area. There were quite a few people who I sort of know already in the community. So it was great to see them again. But also there are a lot of people who I maybe hadn't met or people who have who are sponsoring or have stands and try and make a point of sort of getting over being uh introverted and imposter syndrome sort of thing and going up and speaking to people because you know they've uh, they've spent obviously money to support the event and and you know, the least you can probably do is go and, and speak to them and um they're not I was gonna say not always gonna give you a sales pitch, but a lot I don't think I've ever really been like, hey, try our I think a lot of people just want to sort of speak to you and, and learn and sort of learn about what their company is and what they're doing. And um, yeah, I learn a lot from going around and speaking to people. So what what made you want to submit a session of this DrupalCon? You mentioned it was your first time speaking. If, if you what, what made you uh, want to speak this time? There were a couple of different reasons, like a, a big pushes as well, since we are a diamond sponsor, we also want to show ourselves as a company and show what we can do. Um, like we make the most open DXP. That's that's like one of our slogans. That's what we pride ourselves for. But then you also want to show that you have capable people on board with knowledge because that um, is something that we can like, pride ourselves on. So we really wanted to push in a lot of sessions. So we uh, sat together with several people and just looked at, okay, what are interesting things? What have we learned the last couple of years? What are things that we're also good at that we could share and maybe help other people with? And then this topic was something I was already mulling about for a long time. But like you said, everybody can have imposter syndrome, also somebody with 16 years of Drupal experience. So I was always like, is this interesting enough? Is this topic going to be something that will attract an audience that is going to be interesting? Because in my head, I always think yeah, everybody manages technical debt. Um, but then we also have projects that we started in Drupal 8 in beta where we really notice like, okay, this is extremely important. If you don't tackle de technical debt management well, you will run into problems and they will only get bigger over the years. And we actually have quite a lot of experience. So me and some other colleagues, um, we are also um, becoming more and more focused on business value. We already have that a lot. One of our founders is extremely business focused. Um, we look at what the values that we can generate. And uh, when me and a, a colleague um, sat together to look over topics, I brought it up like, I think it could be interesting, but purely the technical side, maybe that's not enough, but he's a bit more business oriented than me. And then he looked at, okay, maybe we can tackle this his section like return on investment and how do you convince clients? Um, and based on those two different uh, viewpoints, I think we could make like a nice, session that was a middle ground between purely technical and purely business where you could have a very wide audience but i think everybody could pick something up and that was the the push like okay when we add all this stuff together 
I think it could be a very interesting topic, um, which also indicate was indicated in the feedback afterwards. There were people that came to me and they said, I, I wanted it to be more technical. So there is an audience for that purely technical point of view, but um, a lot of people also said that it provided a nice like intermediate ground and uh, could be helpful in learning people, well, not learning or teaching them to be that more, but just making sure people are more aware of that business aspect of what you need to do in technical debt management. It's not just, we need to make sure the site works well and is up to date. It's also clients need to want to pay you to do that. Um, so I think all that together made sure I wanted to, uh, to submit. Let's find that balance, isn't it? Between technical and non-technical topics or some can be both. Some obviously are very more technical than others. I've fallen into that trap as well, where I'm like, everything needs to be a very technical. You know, I've been doing this for 15 years, 16 years, and everything needs. To, I'm a senior developer or a lead developer or whatever. So I need to do these technical, quite technically complex talks. Whereas some of the ones I've been doing recently, like what is PHP? And like a really introduction, we've seen a lot of people at, at meetups going, coming from boot camps. And so they, they want, uh, or they would get something from a talk like just what is an introduction to PHP or what is an introduction to, to Drupal or how do you write you know a basic module because there's always people coming in to the community and starting to find Drupal or PHP or whatever so you don't always need to be doing the, the super complex technical topics um, and I try and encourage everybody to like you know, even if you're a junior developer like start a blog or, or give a, a talk or some something uh because your learning is only even if you're only a couple of weeks ahead of somebody else you've got a, a different take on it to to everybody else so you don't need to be an expert in everything or be super technical to to contribute something back no and um it's also something that it can be surprising of how much additional stuff you can learn yourself by giving a talk because you need to explain it to people like if you, you can be able to do something but explaining something can be more difficult than just doing it and that makes it also a bit of a challenge which makes it interesting uh to do that um it's something i try to push in we're, we're hiring more junior developers we started training the pay traineeship as well that two people just started in is also uh, very quickly making sure that they need to give um, a dev meeting um, like knowledge sharing of what they have learned and even if the senior developers might find it less interesting it is a, a big challenge for less experienced people and experienced people to explain something uh, so everybody can understand it so challenge yeah, yeah trying to encourage show and tells on uh, in teams so i'm, I'm probably going to be giving one about some tests i was writing today because uh, I hadn't, we, we do coding dojos. So I've got a, a junior developer and a graduate on my team at the moment. So we do coding dojos to do coding catters and exercises and give us a chance to practice. And there's more technical things, but also sort of the peer programming or the mob programming approach because, you know, they haven't done it before. So it's a good, a good opportunity to, to go and do that. Uh, but we haven't, there's some new things, particularly in this test I was writing today that I think that mocking we haven't covered yet in any of those sessions so uh, yeah I might do a, a show and tell on that or give somebody else to sort of show how they build a certain page so I think it's a good a good skill for, for people to to learn and uh, one talk I gave at, at a Drupal camp was uh, introduction to Drupal 8 module development and this was just before Drupal 8 was coming out but I submitted that talk because I want to learn how to do Drupal 8 module development uh, so it gave me a, a good reason once they accepted it I then had to uh, spend the time and learn it so I did it the other way in that in that example cool uh, so um, you mentioned the Go on. sorry the, the show and tells that you do is it something that you have like a regular schedule for that you make sure people need to have something or is it just you found something that's cool and then you organize it ad hoc or how do you tackle that because I think it's quite interesting as an idea to do that yeah we try and do it mostly ad hoc i think because we do um we've got sprint planning and other things on a, on a schedule so these are more ad hoc i've worked in other places where we've had so communities of practice sessions where we've got like a schedule so there's maybe every, every other week or every month and we try and find sort of a speaker almost for that uh yeah these ones we do a bit more a bit more ad hoc but maybe we'll try and find a 
with all the schedule to it because I do enjoy them, but I learn things as well. So in a lot of the cases, um, and even just running pay program mob sessions, you you know having to sort of explain to people why we do something a certain way or how something works. It's a good skill, just not just for the uh, the more junior people on the team, but also for for the more senior people on the team as well. Cool. I think it's an interesting idea I'm going to pick up. <laughs> so you mentioned technical debt and your Drupalcon session was on technical debt. Um, how, how do you define technical debt, first of all? Um, I had some very nice, like a very nice definition um, that I found online. But basically, a very easy way to describe it is every suboptimal solution um, that you have in your code or your documentation. Um, because basically, whenever you have a suboptimal solution, you have taken a shortcut, um, and that shortcut will most likely sooner or later, if the site keeps running, um, kind of bite you in the ass. It's gonna create problems for you at some point. Um, you will notice that when you need to refactor something to be able to achieve a certain goal, or when you notice that your code that you developed in the past or your solution that you've created in the past is working against you. And I also mentioned documentation because not documenting things is also a form of technical debt that you need to catch up on. If you don't have a, a small things that seem like, okay, this is easy. We don't need to document this, but having an architecture diagram, um, an infrastructure one or integrations that are shown very easily, high level, that's technical debt. Because whenever somebody new joins your team, or works on the project and you have to explain things in a, a meeting because they cannot look up the documentation, you're generating overhead that stacks up fairly quickly while creating that diagram. I mean, if you want to do it correctly, you should use UML or something like that and one of the official tools or Archimate, whatever. But just having something that you draw on paper and take a picture of and put on your wiki or in your repository, that's already so much more helpful than having nothing that um, you really should do that. And the definition I'm looking at up here is um, the implied costs of future reworking required when choosing an easy but limited solution instead of a better approach that could take more time. So it's a very nice definition, but a very fancy way of saying you chose a suboptimal solution. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen various definitions of it and uh, all sort of the same thing. There's, of course, there's the... Uh, analogy of, of like compared to financial debt as well and then about interest and having to sort of pay it back and everything as well so there's a whole sort of analogy that that goes on there um have you got an example of something on uh, maybe from a recent project that you've worked on where that you could sort of explain how you've taken on technical debt and in, in, in example maybe why you did it um I, I got two examples um so one is that we're finalizing now a project where we used file entity um, uh, to manage media uploads because the site was developed when Drupal 8 was still in beta. Media was not ready yet. It was still being worked on as an initiative, I think. Um, and it was released in 8.4, something like that. Um, but it wasn't ready, so they used file entity. But now we're noticing already, like if you use file entity, you cannot use certain contrib solutions um, for managing things. So we really wanted to switch. So we made the first step. Um, one of our developers also enhanced the contract module. There's a migrate file to media module, uh, I think. So they enhanced that solution, have some extra stuff on top. Um, and we have the, the migration to media purely for documents. We still need to tackle the images because there you have uh, cropping active and cropping with all the data because it's really your selector box that you can do, not just focal point. Um, yeah, we, we chose to do that because we really wanted to use those contrib solutions and be able to uh, prepare to maybe go to Layout Builder because the site uses paragraphs. Um, so it's a step in the long process of being able to use more contrib solutions and, and move away from custom stuff. Uh, the second one example that we have is the site started with forms where you could apply for certain things, but then those forms needed to have additional API integrations on top of the, the initial one then they need to be redesigned. And then there were additional changes. So at some point there were four layers in the hierarchy 
of classes in a form base and version one, version two, and we each time had to extend the previous ones to just adapt the code a bit. Um, and at some point, the older versions were not really necessary anymore. Um, they had to live next to each other for a period. But then afterwards, you would need to refactor them. But every time there was a new functional project coming in that needed to be developed. But we noticed that that big stack of code with a lot of deprecated code in between uh, was really generating overhead. So we discussed that with the client and said, okay, this is look at the time it costs. We're going to give you some examples of issues that took more time because you had to dig in like five different methods just to change one thing. Um, we need to refactor this, give us that many hours and it will save you time in one year that you have it paid back. And then we were able to condense it into uh, two layers. So a base class and then your specific types of forms on top of that. Um, so one was basically moving one contrib to another contrib and the other one was refactoring custom code to uh, to be a bit simpler and easier to work with. Okay, it's some examples I was thinking of for, for me as working on a project, worked with a client for a few years and, they, and their project was Drupal 7. When I started working with them, uh, we migrated them onto Drupal 9 or Drupal 10 sort of earlier on this year. Uh, there were, I think we ended up with four, three or four sites on the same code base, so Drupal multi-site. Uh, so I think the first thing was I, was I was trying, we had Drupal 7 sites still working, but they had their own sort of technical debt, I guess, in as much as uh, they were using outdated technologies and they were hard to to make any changes to. So we were really focused on minimum viable product. So we wanted to release the newer versions as quickly as we could. And even just simple things like changing the background image on a banner, like, yes, that the client probably wants to upload their own image at some point. Right now, we don't need them to do that. We just need to ship the thing. So uh, I, in that case, just hard-coded in the URL in the theme somewhere, whereas then I probably had a ticket, I'll have a ticket in a, in a backlog to had add a form upload field that we can go back to later on. Uh, and then the other part of that is, as I said, it was a multi-site site. So we picked the simplest version of them to migrate first, knowing that there would be additional features to add for site two and site three and site four, uh, but we didn't worry about those yet. So we kept everything simple. We kept everything uh, lean and feature flagged things where we needed to feature flag them later on. But just for that initial implementation, we just kept things as simple as possible to keep things, yeah, minimum viable product and then ship things as quickly as possible. So do, do, does those fit in with your sort of idea around what, technical that is or is that something a little bit different yeah I, I think it kind of depends on your viewpoint um and based on the definition i gave yeah it is you're choosing a suboptimal solution you're choosing to do things in a quick like the, the second one where you choose okay we're not going to implement this behavior yet that's basically not implementing some functions hard coding the url for a banner yeah, I'd, I'd say that's technical debt for sure. <laughs> that, that's not really a, a big question. Um, it, it depends on your viewpoint. If you're not developing things because you might not need them later or the client might change their mind, that's not really technical debt because you're not choosing a suboptimal solution. You're choosing to spend the money wisely, um, which is a fair um, a fair answer to the question, should we do this? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a good solution to do that. Uh, but once you start doing like hard coding URLs where you know, okay, we're going to have to change this or they, they will um, run into problems, then yeah, then definitely that's technical debt. For sure. We had also some examples of, yeah, we just knew that they wouldn't need certain types of products on, on the first one as well. So yeah, I suppose I'm maybe talking about some of these examples of more to do with lean and agile and um, let's see what I'm trying to think. I'll say about minimum viable product already. There's another one that's, come into my brain it'll come it'll come back to me in a minute <laughs> but yeah some something slightly different so um so you'd already mentioned about moving sort of module a to module b or going and refactoring what do you have an initial point to which you decide do we want to take on this technical debt and make that as like an actual uh decision or is it something that just sort of happens sort of almost organically or how does that usually happen for you usually what we try to do 
Um, so I, in the presentation, the slides I gave in DrupalCon, uh, we also mentioned that an important thing that we're doing and trying to do because it's an active process and getting that better is keeping track of technical debt. There's a lot of things that we noticed where we could improve it. Um, I mean, the code base has lived since 2016, so yeah, four, eight years almost. Um, so there is technical debt in there. It's unavoidable. You 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 will choose suboptimal solutions. Um, and uh, technical debt can also arise because of external factors. Um, but um, we keep track of it. We try to estimate the rough sizing on how much time it would take to fix it. And then we also take a look at how much does it cost us if we don't fix this. So mm -hmm. some things arise and um, in the beginning uh, when I took over that site because I didn't develop origin didn't develop it originally, I, I took it over about four or five years ago. Um, I didn't keep track of it as much. Um, and then you notice that you know as a project owner, as a technical lead, what is annoying you but it's very hard to put that into numbers and explain it. So once we started keeping track of it, and also I asked the, the other people in the team working on it, like, okay, if, if you notice that you're spending more time because of something in the code that you think should be refactored or that you feel is technical debt, let me know. And I'll take that into account and add the information to our issues about technical debt and keeping track of it. So it, it arises a bit organically as in people have issues and they report them. And then we keep track of it. And then it also becomes a point where you notice, okay, we're spending time on this. And it's quite a big, significant investment in having to make some changes. Where is this coming from? And uh, how can we potentially fix that? Um, yeah, it's in the end, uh, what you will fix is uh, partially using data, using return on investment and an estimation, but it's also gut feeling and knowing with experience what will actually give us time and how can we then warrant this to the client as a secondary factor because yeah you've worked in drupal so long sometimes you also just know okay this this is not okay this we need to refactor uh, let's look at how we can tackle this so maybe you've got something as you said maybe you know it's going to take maybe a day to to do a refactor and and pay back some of that technical debt from previously, but that will save more than that in the long term, I guess, over the next sort of month or the next year. So I suppose there's some justification there that you can then go either internally or to a client and say, look, we need this time to then, you know, but by doing this, that will save you more time or means we can maybe get through future things faster or something like that. Yeah, that's that's the business aspect that my co-speaker uh put into the presentation because he's a a better more business savvy developer than me um yeah that's the end you you calculate a return on investment you basically look at what will this save in time what will this cost in time if you don't fix it and you use all that data to show what it is and that also means that sometimes you will have to make the decision to not fix something because if something takes a day to fix but you only save one hour per year, then it takes you eight years to pay that back. And then there's no point in making that investment um, yeah. to actually do that. Um, so sometimes it will give you the wrong result that you don't want, but then you need to also follow that conclusion. And you can always revisit that as well in a later phase when you notice that maybe the time investment needed uh, is lower or maybe the time that you gain is higher because it's a certain piece of code that is being touched a lot by functional changes by the client and the amount of issues that you have is bigger. So it's not an hour per year. It's three hours per year. Oh, now the time to pay it back is three years. Okay. Now, now it's going to be worthwhile to do this. Um, yeah. I mean, I work a lot on projects. I was in legacy projects, but projects I didn't build. <laughs> it sounds like you were saying the same thing. <laughs> so there's a lot of the technical debt probably, or, or a lot of undocumented code or lots of, uh, as you said, suboptimal solutions or things you assume people are going to go back to at some point, but but, but haven't. Um, and then, yeah, oh, I want to go back and I want to refactor this because I, I don't like, but if people, if that code isn't being used, then the return on investment is a lot lower. Or, or not that it's not being used, but if it's being used less, if it's not used at all, then of course, get, it's, it's get rid of it. But if it's being used not very much, then yeah, the amount of time that you'd spend 
manufacturing it is not going to be worth it to justify to a, to a client or to a, a manager or so you know, stakeholders yeah. and those can be very difficult conversations because for example the example i gave it took i think a year or so of uh going into discussions with the client like tacking it onto meetings and explaining the added value of doing it and even with showing the numbers it took a while to convince them that okay we, we really need to change this and get everybody on board which is fair enough the investment we asked for in total we haven't finished everything we're tacking on in smaller parts was 100 hours and that's a huge budget to request of a client to do something that functionally they won't see anything for um but then it's a matter of building trust that's that's an important factor and using data uh, correctly like to your advantage it might seem like you need to trick the client but that's totally not the case but you need to make sure that you also are convinced of the added value and show it to the client um, that this will help them and how much money they need to spend on stuff yeah but that's that's quite tricky and i've worked on projects and places before and we've been doing you know, new features for clients and then we've been doing uh, so BAUs or just maintenance updates and, and things behind the scenes and, and bug fixes, but because they can't see a lot of it, then well, where's that time going? Or, you know, if, if, because if you, if you change the whole homepage of yellow to green or something, they'd be able to see it. Or if you're adding new features somewhere that the client can see, but if you're just essentially rewriting code or changing code that you've already written to have the same result, then I suppose you do need to justify or at least educate probably the better word as, as to why why that needs to happen or, or what the benefits are yeah. have you ever had a client just be like no we're not doing it we don't want to pay and just digging the heels in and, and not doing it and he said it, he said it took you a while to convince this client but i suppose they could just say no you should have done it right the first time or something maybe well we, we've heard across the company and myself i think we heard all kinds of arguments like needed to do it right the first time is one that i've heard um with that client specifically they were okay with some parts of technical debt that was just a bigger budget that we asked for to do it so while other smaller things were comparatively easy to get approved because there was a already um a trust relation that we built so they they knew what we asked for something it wasn't just because we wanted to do something and play around it was really because we thought it was necess necessary but like fair enough 100 hours as an investment for something that they don't see i am very much aware of how much money that costs for uh, clients and that they really need to be able to uh, warrant it for themselves and also for the higher ups in the organization because usually there's very like various layers of management that always need to make sure that they can warn where the money goes and where the budget goes. Mm -hmm. Whenever that happens, when people dig their heels in, like that should have been done the first time or it shouldn't cost this much, I reiterate and explain to them the value. Um, and in general, we go quite far in explaining to them in, in various different analogies. Sometimes we involve different colleagues who have a different approach in explaining things, um, depending on the case. In the end, we also uh, sometimes make the choice and ask the client, and are we the, honestly the, the, the best partner for you? I think that's a valid question mm -hmm. to ask. Um, yeah. If you look at the, the projects that we're doing um, and the clients that we're working for, um, it could be we grew as an organization. Uh, over the last, we were about 10 years old. Um, we grew quite a lot. The clients that we had in the beginning were more the local mom and pop shop. That was what was targeted. Right now, we're really targeting organizations with a lot bigger budget and different needs. Um, and then I think it's fair enough to say maybe we're not a match anymore. And then we'll gladly help them look for a new partner and make sure that they have everything that they need to move to a new partner if that is necessary. Um, but doing that investment within reason um, and listening to our arguments is also something that we feel is quite important. Uh, to do uh, they can say no they every client has the right to say no to whatever but if we say that something is really necessary and they really don't want to listen to any of the arguments because when they dig in there he'll say it should have been done right the first time maybe uh maybe it could have been done or better the first time um but also situations change if we it's hard to give examples but we noticed that as well with um with the updates you need to do a major update. It's going to be about every two to three years. Um, 
with the change they did to the long-term support in Drupal, uh, I think last week, uh, they announced that they were going to support Drupal 10 for two years, which is honestly, I was very happy to see that, but uh, we also need to change the, uh, take a look at how we're going to tackle our major updates. Um, because there is a small impact that we have that we can make it a bit easier for ourselves and the clients in how we tackle this. But anyway, for the for the major updates, so they had a site developed in Drupal 8 and I need to move to Drupal 9. Um, that was the first time as Drupal developers that we did a major update the way that it was as being done now for modern Drupal. So I think everybody that worked in Drupal had lessons to learn and had to uh, figure out how to do it. Yep. And also for the clients, they expected the site is built and now it's fine because with Drupal 7, they built the site and it lived for 10 years or something like that. But yeah. that's not the case. You need to maintain it. So some clients were like, but why do we need to pay that much money now? The site is already there. You're not going to change anything. And then it's a tough conversation where you have to explain how it goes. Like we, we explained it in the beginning, but with some clients it was forgotten or different people worked on the projects, a lot of reasons. Um, and it's a tough conversation where you have to say, this is what you need to do every two to three years to four years, depending on the release schedule that they will have. We will need to do a major update. And we already see a lot of traction. Um, uh, you talked with Matt uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, upgrade status and the plugins he made for PHP stand. And then we have Drupal Rector. If you look at what we can do now for a major update compares to the first one, it, it's already gotten so much better and it will only improve more. Um, but it's an investment that you need to make to make sure that your site just keeps living. And in fact, even aside from the major updates, uh, you should invest in your site and make changes because it's necessary for search engine optimization that you invest in the content of your site and change it and add stuff to it. Because you cannot make a site and leave everything as is and expect to be high in Google and have uh, traction with clients. You should probably do a redesign every five to 10 years, even if it's slight changes, just to keep it interesting and modern because design principles change. Uh, it's, it's open conversations. It's putting everything on the table, listening to the clients uh, and to their input and figuring out why they don't want to approve it as well because they have reasons that we're sometimes not aware of and figuring out a solution to them. And if it really doesn't work to get a solution and also making tough decisions with or for the client, I mean, we've tackled it all kinds of, uh, all kinds of ways. And maybe our sales is atypical, but when I had to do it with clients, I had so much support from them, uh, our sales and account managers and, and figuring out the best way to bring the message to clients and, uh, and opening up the conversation and making sure that everything We'll get to a, a satisfying conclusion for everybody involved. Yeah, I suppose do you want to try and avoid sort of the that typical sort of developer urge of, oh, we need to rewrite everything because it wasn't, <laughs> you know, somebody else wrote it the first time, we're going to rewrite it a different way or, or something. We're not talking about that. Or, uh, I suppose the other thing is that when somebody says, why do you not do it right, quote, in quotes, the first time, like you didn't know everything that you don't know you know more now than you did then, you know, and then maybe if you know everything now, then, yeah. the, sorry, if you knew everything then that you know now, you may have come up with a different solution or you may have looked at something different. So uh, the things are always, always changing, I suppose. Like one um, example um, that is very vivid is uh, the site was developed. The architecture back then was probably the best solution at that moment with the mm -hmm. uh, information that was available then. But then years later, they, there's an import for events, uh, for volunteers, for a lot of different content. And the synchronizations were just not working well anymore, like three, four years down the line. But yeah, in those years, they had over 25,000 events that needed to be imported with uh, API calls and they need to be updated. So you need to do the correct calls and mm -hmm. their API didn't support a Delta flag. So you couldn't check all the new things. It was also not developed as such. So the context can change so much like the amount of data for a migration or synchronization yeah. if it grows it just becomes more complex yeah right, it's not yeah, easy it's not... for clients to understand no it's not it's not Sorry. just the technical technical things changing it's you know maybe the business model has changed of course with um covid and we worked on various sites where you know they maybe 
we had a client then who was who was running in person events, and of course they had to go online overnight. So we had to go and, and oh, make yeah. make uh, make the, all those changes. The, the actual business model changed pretty much overnight. Um, and I suppose, yeah, if, if the client wants to say no, we don't want to do this refactor, but if then subsequently they're saying, well, why is it going to take? three days to, to do this fix well if we did that refactor that we said a few months ago then that would you know cut that in half or maybe in, in a third or, or something and it's going to have a, a knock-on effect to, to other other things later on yeah it's it's interesting the business model change is really interesting aspect of it as well and why mm -hmm. things change so how you mentioned about tracking tracking technical debt how how do you normally do that is that we talk about to do comments in, in code or are we talking about to keeping technical debt tickets in, in, a, in a track system how, how do you normally track track technical debt whatever works best for um you as a team organization but you mentioned the two that i already put in the slides that i think are the most useful so the the main one that we're using is issues um we're creating issues for technical debt that we find, we're adding a tag to it because then you can find those in a list easy. We're trying to add estimations where possible to them uh, and also the priority. Like if we fix this one, is it like a high priority and that's gonna okay. generate a lot of value for us. Uh, we don't add the numbers of how much time it would save because that is very much dependent on how much you will need to touch that code. That is something that we take into account when we're making the case for the client. Uh, if necessary, sometimes a client just agrees with it, but if necessary, we tackle it then. Um, and that just gives us the list. It's very easy to go over that with a client. It's very easy to go over that with the team. But you also mentioned to do the uh, comments in the code. We do that as well to do, but also deprecated flags. You need to remove a class, but you can't yet because it's still mm -hmm. required. Uh, you mark it as deprecated. I mean, it, that's that's how Drupal tackles it itself. It, it adds deprecated flags to the things that you should update. And that's why I love PHP stand as well. Um, just putting it on level one or two, I think it's two, will also show you all the deprecations, which is very helpful um, when you're doing a minor update that you're already making your code compliant with the next major version. And you're, again, your technical debt fixing gets uh, spread out over time, mm -hmm. making the, the effort that you need to put in for your major update just a tiny bit lower. Um, but it just helps also in making sure that the client doesn't have like a big budget to approve, but it's more a continuous stream of small things that you can, can change. So comments in code to do is an easy one because they get flagged and can be picked up with any IDE very easily. You can also get them picked up with any, um, well, not any, but certain scanning tools. Deprecated flags are interesting because they get picked up by PHP stand. Uh, and you can make sure that they need to be picked up later by just putting them in the baseline file or something uh, and keeping track of it that way. For the rest, yeah, it's whatever works. I've seen people creating pages on the wiki with a list of things that they should tackle with then different columns based on the data they, they want to use for that. Um, and then I'm putting that in the meeting notes, like certain sections of it to tackle it with clients. Um, I've actually seen for an, an older project, post-it notes being used. I'm not sure if that's the approach you want to take, but it is an option if your team likes Kanban boards with post-it notes that you have a technical debt wall with things that you want to do. Whatever works for you and your team, if you have tools that you're already using to track certain things, then just use the same tools for technical debt, but make sure that you can easily filter those out or get a list of them. And that will, will work for you most likely. Because it's being consistent sort of on a project by project basis you know, maybe you've got project a that does it this way and project b does it that way but you don't want multiple ways of doing it on the same project because then things going to get potentially missed or, or lost yeah we're um trying to make things more uniform we got four teams in the company and we're trying to keep things a bit uniform but that is a step-by-step -step approach where usually we let developers figure out the approaches that they like and then we try to figure out what the best approach is company-wide and shift towards that. There's no point, I think, um, in trying to to make that a top-down decision on how they should be tracked. Because in our team, uh, for the project I mentioned, we use the issue tracker and the tags. But in another team, maybe they have a different approach that could be better. Um, so honestly, whatever works, I think the, 
it's more important to keep track of it a certain way than to actually do it a certain way. Like the, the method in which mm -hmm. you do it matters less than the fact that you are keeping track of it and you, you are, are trying it. to, yeah, yeah. Because if you're not, it just stays hidden. And then you might know as tech lead of a project, and but everybody's going to have a different viewpoint. And also developers, um, which is also discussions that we had, ah, I've noticed this, we need to fix this. Like, no, we're not going to do this. Because if you look at the list, that is going to be like halfway through the list. And we got these, which are way more important and will actually give us value. It makes it easier to convince developers to not fix something because I've seen that happen as well. They think that they want to do the best thing for the project and you're starting to fix it within other issues and so on. And then you're spending budget that you're not supposed to keeping track of it. Make sure that you can easily say, just put it in the list. We'll tackle it every now and again. If it comes up that it's high in the list, you will have your chance to tackle this. Um, it gives an outlet for developers for their frustration that they sometimes might have. <laughs> One one thing to spring to mind quickly. I know uh, you talked about sort of design diagrams and, and UML and everything at the beginning. Um, I think it springs to mind. I, I do. I used to do ADRs, so architectural decision records, and I do technical design documents still for for things. So writing things down, like how we're going to approach doing a certain thing, uh, and something that I like in that is you, so documenting other ways you could also do the same thing so maybe it's we're going to use this module maybe we're going to use uh, a third-party service maybe we're going to write something custom it's still documenting all the situations down and then say we're going to use option a um because reasons um i suppose there could be a situation there where if, if you know you're doing something in a suboptimal way again or in or taking on knowingly taking on technical debt at that point like this is the solution we're going to pick today uh but in six months or 12 months we might want to revisit it and, and do option b or c uh, if you've got a decision record or a tdd that says uh, and this is now later on we're going to switch to, to option c and then you've got a subsequent uh document that then says oh we're, we're now switching to it for this reason um but Either way, you still got those decisions being documented. I think that's quite, quite key. Uh, I don't see it a lot in projects. You just see like maybe if there's documentation, it's very high level, but you it's or it's it's the what, and it's not capturing the the why uh, a lot of the time. I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I fully agree with the why. It's uh, something I'm trying to get better at myself because it's not really ingrained in me, but also within the company, the the why you make a decision. Is sometimes even more important than the actual decision mm -hmm. we've seen it happen like we have a discussion about something and we get to a conclusion but then a year later there's several new people that have joined and they see that outcome and they have the idea something should be different but since we didn't document the why and the input that we had for that decision it is basically the same discussion that keeps happening <laughs> but as long as there's yeah. no new input arguments so what I want to, to get to is, um, I think one of the interesting concepts I, I saw from a friend that works at Meta is they use a decision by traffic light. They have your options, you have your criteria and you fill mm -hmm. it out. And then you give each uh, combination of your option that you have in your criteria, a flag, either red, orange, or green. And then you can say, okay, we're gonna go for the one with the most green lights, or we're gonna go for the one which on this or these two specific criteria, cause they're more important have green lights or orange lights. But it just makes it very visual. It, it, it's a very cool concept that I haven't really used yet, but I really would like to use because I really think it's going to make you think about uh, your, your options, your criteria that you have and how well they score against that and why you're making the decision. Like, is it the aggregate of all your criteria? Is it some specific ones? Um, there's, I think, a lot of theory and articles to be found online, but I haven't really dug into that yet. But I really like the concept and idea because makes it visual um which is yeah. a nice thing to have sounds really trying to go and look for that and see if i can find so that does make <laughs> a really a really good approach um and there was also a session at DrupalCon. i think somebody at lullabot did a talk on on adrs so maybe i'll uh, find out who that was and and i'll definitely watch it the video now it's on youtube but i will go and uh maybe, maybe i'll find out who did that talk and speak to them on, on this on this podcast as well so uh, that would be really interesting. 
Um, this there, would be was really, a, yeah. Go there was another session as well that could be interesting um, where somebody talked about holacracy, um, which seems like an interesting model with potentially some downsides as well with distributed leadership and so on. I, I went to that session um, and they have a concept in there, objections versus concerns, which we're also using in the company that somebody else brought up. So when there's a decision that needs to be made, people can raise concerns as in, yeah, I'm concerned about this or an objection means if this goes through, things are going to go haywire, mm -hmm. which really makes sure that you're moving from a model where everybody needs to basically approve it to you can give concerns and you will take that input into consideration. And if you really have data that shows that it won't work, we'll just veto it and stop it or have to revisit it completely. Um, so the whole accuracy model as one thing I think is interesting. That session, if you like ADRs, I think that one is also an interesting one to watch. Uh, and then the objection versus concern is also an interesting one to get decisions, ADRs or something else move through at a quicker pace um, because we're very collaborative. We're very bottom up within the organization, but it also means that sometimes we were completely getting to a standstill because things were just not being moved forward because everybody considered their concerns as an objection and as valid ones. And then you're very much vetoed by whoever has a, a problem with something. So uh, mm. I think those are two interesting sessions as well, since you mentioned ADRs. Yeah, I'll have to look into those. I think I found the one, just looking through the playlist, I think I've one that might be that, but I'll, I'll have a look later on. <laughs> um, yeah, this has been a really great conversation. I feel like we could probably speak for, for a lot longer, but uh, we probably should wrap it up now. Um, where, if people do have more questions, where can people find you online? Um, if you look for the jobsolid.com website, I think you can find uh, contact information for me. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn that you can find me fairly easily. I'm on Twitter and so on as well, but those are more private social networks. So uh, that's not really for professional capacity. Um, might be in DrupalCon Portland if I am lucky enough that my session get accepted. I submitted the same one that I gave in Lil for DrupalCon. So we'll see. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out through, I think LinkedIn is going to be the easiest one to get a hold of me. Um, right. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Tita, for joining me today. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, for listening to the Beyond Blocks podcast. I've been Oliver Davis. Thank you.